Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. That night, Mr. Heilprin and I happened to visit a cafe where we used to go on days devoid of pleasure. Mr. Heilprin is highborn of an ancient family, one of those distinguished families of Israel that have sustained us during our long exile and given us power to stand among the nations. Sometimes, be he in high spirits or low, when surrounded by willing listeners, he recounts the glory of his ancestors. Having studied secular sciences rather than the Torah, he does not boast of his ancestors' learning. Instead, he describes their homes and business dealings. And even from these everyday matters, one hears how gracious were those early generations and how gracious their deeds. And one's soul weeps in secret for the pride of Israel wrested from them and not to return till the coming of the Messiah. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature at the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, series editor of the S.Y. Agnon Library at the Toby Press. A teacher, editor, and author of books on Jewish thought, education, and literature, Rabbi Sachs directs the online webyeshiva.org program and was recently appointed as editor of Tradition, the premier journal of Orthodox Jewish thought published in English. Rabbi Sachs lives in Efrat, Israel, with his wife, Ilana, and their four children. Hello, Rabbi Sachs. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Galit. It's nice to be with you. So let's start with a question that I'm curious about. When did you start being interested in Shai Agnon? Oh, well, like an Agnon story itself, uh, my interest in Agnon is is rather long and complicated, and it never actually comes out the same way twice. But uh, the short answer is that uh, growing up as a, as a Jewish teenager in the United States in a uh, home that was not, that was not uh, terribly connected to Jewish learning, uh, aside from, you know, some basic Jewish traditions, I had become more interested in Jewish life and learning and observance uh, in high school. And uh, around that time, uh, one of my grandmothers bought for me a copy of what was then called 21 Stories. It was a rather odd collection of anthologized short stories that had been translated over the years, unknown stories, translated over the years. Uh, and uh, she bought it for me because I, I suppose she knew that I had become more interested in Jewish, Jewish uh, life. And uh, here was this great Israeli author who had won the Nobel Prize, and she was the type of woman that would have taken note of such a thing. And uh, I read it then in translation. I could not have read him in Hebrew at that point. Even if I could have read him in Hebrew, all of his very many rich allusions and intertextual connections to the wealth of biblical and rabbinic literature would have been completely lost on me. But nevertheless, I understood, as did those as did those judges in Stockholm that gave him the Nobel, I understood that he was saying something very profound about the condition of contemporary religious life, contemporary uh, Jewish life, about the transition from the old world to the new. And these were things that were very much occupying me. So I became 
very interested in him. I was, you know, quite a, a bookish kid at that uh, at that point in my life, and I continued to read him. And uh, years later, when I came to live in in Israel, I endeavored to read him in the original Hebrew. But unfortunately, my Hebrew was not quite good enough. Uh, I was defeated by it. And I continued to read in translation the, the few translations that were available. And then at one point, I've now been living in Israel for, for 25 years. At, uh, at one point, I guess my Hebrew had passed the tipping point, and I uh, began to re-encounter him more seriously in the original. And quite <laughs> on a whim, I had this idea that having read a fair amount of Agnon's writing, I could read the whole thing. I could read the whole collected works in, 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 in 24 volumes, in 23 volumes, uh, beginning to end. Uh, and like all of those kinds of immersion projects, you learn a tremendous amount about the thing you're immersing yourself into. And then it kind of serves as a lens uh, back onto yourself to you know, understand something about your own self and your own situation. Uh, I undertook this this project, and then I became involved in the work of the Agnon House, which is a wonderful institution. Your listeners should should visit the next time they're in Jerusalem, which was the home that he lived in from 1930 uh, from 1931 until until his death in 1970, where he wrote in the majority of his great works, where his library and study are still preserved. And at that research and teaching center, uh, I began delivering courses. And of course, the best way to the best way to understand anything, to master anything, is to start teaching it. So I uh, I began doing that quite a number of years ago, and then I fell into this work at the Toby Press that we are here to talk about today, uh, of uh, translating and editing the work of other translators and annotating his material for an English reading audience. Ah, so how did the Toby Press come to underwrite this whole project, and and how did they? How did you connect with them to be the, its series editor? Uh, the Toby Press is uh, is an important uh, publisher of Hebrew literature in translation. It's now part of a larger conglomerate of uh, Jewish publishing uh, under the under the flagship of the Korain Publishers, which are doing very important work here in Jerusalem in translating the Talmud and producing a whole variety of new prayer books and Bibles uh, in Hebrew and English and other languages. Uh, but the Toby Press line dedicates itself to things in, let's say, larger uh, issues of Jewish literature and, and, uh, and writing. And uh, the publisher, Matthew Miller, had kind of set it as a kind of goal, as a, you know, both as, a, as an attempt to stock the shelves with fine translation and to advance a certain certain cause of uh, reviving interest in Hebrew literature uh, amongst worldwide readers. Uh, and Agnon, of course, is the crown and the jewel of anybody interested in, in translating Hebrew literature for a worldwide audience. And uh, it began with one volume, and then I became involved. And uh, like most of these projects, it grew. I think initially we, we talked about doing five volumes, and then it grew to seven volumes. And ultimately, we did, uh, we did 15 volumes uh, in, uh, in translation. And uh, thankfully, there's been quite a very positive response to the, to the project and to the series. Uh, there have been some very nice, uh, nice reviews written in some of the important uh, platforms of uh, literary criticism about the work that we've done. 
So let's talk about Agnon. He started writing at 14 in Yiddish in Poland. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about him a little bit and then what happened to his writing? Yeah, so Agnon is born in a little town. It's not technically, or at least I say, it's not technically a shtetl. When people hear shtetl, they think fiddler on the roof. But Agnon, mm-hmm. Agnon is born into the world of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in a region called Galicia, which where he lived is today in Western Ukraine, but then it was the Eastern uh, reaches of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Uh, He's born in 1888, uh, at least that's what he said. In fact, he was born in 1887. It was part of the mythologizing of his own biography, his date of birth and his name and, and other biographical facts. But he's born in 1887, in the summer of 87, in this little town called Buchach, uh, in, uh, in, in Galicia. It's a, it's a, when, he's, when he's growing up there at the end of the 19th century, it's a town of ten or 12,000 people, about 60% of whom are Jews. Uh, he's born into a completely uh, traditional, what we would today call an ultra-Orthodox family. But it's not the world of... Russian Jewry or Polish Jewry. It's uh, it's a world where he's exposed to to things that might not have been on the regular yeshiva curriculum. He studies in the cheder, the traditional one room schoolhouse. But his father, who was himself a rabbi and a scholar, but earned his living in the fur trade, his father was had something of the 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 poet in him and had something of uh, he was himself something of a of a literary man in addition to being a Judaic scholar. And young Agnon is allowed to read whatever he wants. And he, at a young age, absorbs, begins to absorb, of course, Yiddish and the budding Hebrew language uh, literature that's growing amongst him, as well as world literature, which he would have encountered either in translation to Yiddish or Hebrew or in German, which was the only other language that he really had any fluency in. Uh, and he begins writing and publishing at a very young age, uh, again, first in Yiddish and then in Hebrew. And by the time he arrives in the land of Israel in 1908, at around the age of 20, he's completely left Yiddish behind as a language of his art, and he dedicates himself completely to being a Hebrew, a Hebrew author. He was very fortunate in that he found himself a patron in uh, the person of Shlomo Zalman Shokin, of the famous Shokin Publishing House, which till this day is still Agnon's Hebrew publisher. Uh, Shokin was his patron, uh, and that allowed him throughout most of his life to dedicate himself fully to his craft and to not have to worry about supporting himself in some other manner, which so many authors and, uh, and artists, of course, have to struggle with. And that meant he had a very, very long active career. He seems to have, although there were certain projects that he wrestled with, he seems to have never struggled from writer's block a day in his life. Uh, he, he wrote and he revised. He would write and stick it away in the drawer and let the ideas percolate and come back to something years later. But he had this extremely prolific career and was writing up until a number of months before his death in, 19, in, 19, uh, in 1970. And after he died, he left behind a wealth of material uh, that his daughter, at his instruction, serving as his executor, posthumously published. Uh, and for many years after Agnon's death, every few years a new new volume would be 
would be uh, would appear would be published, uh, both anthologized writings that had appeared in periodical literature but hadn't been produced in book form, as well as original material that had not been published, uh, including whole novels and long story cycles. Um, so it, it was this very rich and very long and very fruitful uh, career. Of course, as I mentioned in nineteen, 19- hold on, hold on. This was this was in Hebrew. Yes, in Hebrew. Have any of those been? Tra- are any of those part of the fifteen? Yes, from yes. The series, the, including including uh-huh. the posthumous writings. Our series uh, covers material that was both published in his lifetime as well as some material from the posthumous uh, collection. Ah, I asked you to choose one of Agnon's stories that you find particularly meaningful, and you chose the story called "The Prime of Her Life" in uh-huh. English. How, can you? Talk about how that's an example of Agnon's genius, and I know it wasn't easy to choose just one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now that now that I recall, I recall that we had earlier discussed this, and I had mentioned it. Although, you know, like you ask someone who's your favorite, you ask a parent who's your favorite child. Uh, right, it's, right. it's hard to pick, and it depends on my mood and what I'm interested in. I, I I must have chosen that story in the prime of her life, which appears in our series in a volume called Two Scholars Who Were in Our Town and Other Novellas." Uh, because Agnon wrote in a whole variety of genres, from the very, very, very small, almost microscopic short story to the long, sprawling, multi-hundred-page novel. Uh, but I find his novellas, his let's say his long short stories, to be the most compelling. I find that that's his, as a, as a writer, not necessarily as a storyteller, but the art of his writing, where he's engaging almost in a form of rabbinic midrash. You know, your listeners may be aware of of the rabbinic mode of midrash, where the rabbis are writing in a way that's in dialogue with the biblical text and almost continuing that work of the biblical text through all types of intricate uh, plays on theme, plays on symbols, word plays. Agnon's doing that. Part of his achievement was that he took the entirety of Jewish literature that had preceded him from the Bible through the rabbinic literature, the Mishnah, the Talmud, the Midrash, a medieval Hebrew writing, medieval Hebrew poetry, the, the Hebrew writing of the Haskalah, of the Jewish Enlightenment, of course, all of the great Yiddish authors that had preceded him, Hasidic tales, the entirety of Jewish, Jewish literature, and distilled it and poured it into the mold of modern literature. And that, that particular story that you point to in the prime of her life is a very good example of that uh, in terms of how, the, how he's working through some of these larger themes, themes that run throughout his other works as well. And part of his, part of the universe, the literary universe that he paints, that he creates, is the idea that everything is interconnected. So uh, a minor character in this story will appear as, uh, in a cameo, uh, a major character in this story will appear in a cameo role in a, in a different novel or in a different story and kind of creates this idea that all of his stories not only are in dialogue with the world that came before them, but are in dialogue with with each other. Um, and in the prime of her life, which is this very touching tale, it happens to be in some ways it's uh, in some ways it's quite exceptional in Agnon's canon because it's the only story that's 
told from the mouth of a female narrator. Although mm-hmm. Agnon uh, wrote many wonderful female characters, in many of his stories, actually, the female character, the woman character, is, is the stronger character. The men often tend to be these passive figures, and the women are sometimes the ones that have the, the greater uh, pathos and the greater uh, uh, complexity of, of personality. But this is the only case where the narrator of the tale is herself a woman. And in this case, a young woman who, who's narrating, who's telling her story. Uh, but like Agnon does with his male narrators, and in almost every case, the male narrator of Agnon's stories, we, the reader, are meant to believe is Agnon himself. Now, of course, it was not Agnon himself. It was a game that he played with his readers. And people, even some of the most respectable scholars, make the mistake of saying things like, Agnon says such and such and such and such, when in fact, it's Agnon's narrator, who's a character that he's created, even when that narrator himself is sometimes called Agnon and shares Mm. biographical details. But it's a kind of projection of his persona into the story. So in this story, The Prime of Her Life, the, the narrator, this young woman, Tirza Mintz, is narrating her story. And by the time you get to the end, uh, to a kind of rather surprise ending, uh, as happens with most of his stories, you realize you have to go back because the narrator was not terribly reliable. And you, the reader, fell for what she was telling you, at least the first time you read it. Agnon apparently once playfully said, any story not worth reading twice probably wasn't worth reading the first time. (laughs) And uh, when you get to the end and you realize exactly what's happening, how unreliable a narrator she was, you have to go back and read it again with the knowledge you've gained the first time the first time through. And it's a really very, it's a lovely story. It's a complex story. It's in some ways a heartbreaking story, but it's also a story like so many of his other other pieces, which has a kind of indeterminate ending. The, the, the story supports different interpretations. And, you know, you'll read it at one point and then you'll come back and read it again a couple of years later. It's a story that I've, I've read many times and I've taught many times. And each time I read it, I, I come to a different conclusion about what he's saying. And it's not that the story's changed, of course. It's that I've changed, that I, I'm now more mature than I was the first time I read it. And maybe that means I read it better. Maybe it actually means that I read it less accurately, but it's the kind of thing you can keep going back to seeing new material in it. So as a kind of introduction to his, his, his uh, writing, it's a nice place to start. Thank you. So you've just explained that he was influenced by the entire canon of Jewish writing across the centuries. Were there any authors, contemporary or historical authors that influenced him? And are there any authors, writers that you would compare to Agnon? Oh, well, that That's is two a, questions in one. That is a very tricky conversation. In 1966, when he wins the Nobel Prize, he goes to Stockholm to receive the prize from the king, and he's asked to give a speech. And in the speech, which, which you can read, you can also listen to it online on the Nobel Prize speech, uh, on the Nobel Prize website, but also you can read it in, uh, in, the, uh, in, in one of our volumes, uh, he discusses this question of who were his influences. Uh, 
because Agnon was aware that uh, literary scholars, both in Israel and abroad, were comparing him to other authors. And he sometimes bristled at those comparisons. And he makes a very outlandish claim that really his influences were the books you would find in the traditional rabbinic bookshelf that you would find in the Beit Midrash, in the, in the Jewish study hall, the Bible and the Talmud and the Mishnah and things like that. But of course, he, and then he goes on to say, people have ascribed to me influences of authors whose names I haven't even heard. Huh. Agnon was often compared to, to Kafka. Uh, earlier, you had, you had read a selection from a story which in English is called Lawless. Uh, that's a story which bears very, very clear resonances with Kafka. Uh, the reader familiar with Kafka's The Trial will, will understand why these two authors were compared. But Agnon claimed that he'd never really read Kafka. Uh, it's not true what sometimes is reported that he said he'd never heard of Kafka. Uh, he had Kafka. If you visit Beit Agnon, you'll see we have Kafka's writings both in Hebrew as well as in the ori- original uh, German. Uh, someone once pointed this out to Agnon, and he said, "Oh, those those are my wife's." Um, but he he was not he was not fluent in Kafka's writing, and he actually claimed that it was somehow foreign to the root of his soul, whatever that means. But it means that this was not to his taste. And others have pointed out that the fact that there's a similarity. Between, between the two, that they both write, particularly in Agnon's more modernistic pieces, uh, his stories that he starts writing in the 30s, um, these kinds of surrealistic, nightmarish uh, pieces, which really do depict the conflict and the contrast and the transition between the world of tradition and the world of modernity, the world of faith and the world of, the world of doubt, um, these are stories that bear that very distinct Kafkaesque uh, resonance. But the fact that we call that genre Kafkaesque is only because Kafka, you know, kind of put his signature on it. And others, of course, had written in this genre before. And the, the, the great Agnon scholar, Professor Arnold Band, pointed out over 50 years ago that uh, both Agnon and, and Kafka were influenced by earlier writers they were both influenced by the writings of the Hasidic rabbi Nachman of Breslov, whose writings itself, if it weren't anachronistic, we would say that Rabbi Nachman's writings are Kafkaesque. Um, and that would have lent this influence. Agnon, of course, did admit the influences of other great European writers, uh, of Homer, of Cervantes, of Balzac. Uh, some have pointed to many, very many parallels with Proust, um, Agnon uh, acknowledged the influence of some of the Scandinavian writers like Ibsen and Hamsun, uh, and uh, and that's that's very clear in in some of his writings. There's been, uh, of course, like all great writers of the early and mid twentieth century, it's impossible to not see here and there the influences of Freud on Agnon's writings and. Agnon and his family were part of a larger circle of students of Freud who came and established the psychoanalytical school in Jerusalem. So he was, he was familiar with these things, and that also finds their way into his, uh, into his writings. But each of these, you know, I've just listed a catalog of very wide and diverse uh, 
classics of the Western canon, uh, each in their own way make make appearances. Freud is going to appear in ways that Cervantes doesn't, and and vice vice versa. So, can you talk a little bit about? Agnon's sense of humor and how he addressed issues of the day. Agnon was a great ironist. Uh, irony appears on almost every, uh, almost every page. Uh, not just that the not just that the narrator himself, uh, this kind of first person narrator who sometimes stands outside of the action and sometimes is taking part in the action. Uh, the the narrator. Uh, this kind of puppet, the sock puppet of uh, of the man himself, of the author himself, is has a great ironic sense of humor. But Agnon also knew, even in his darkest works, even in his most tragic works, and one could say that tragedy is, in one way or another, not precisely in the Greek sense of the term, but tragedy, the tragedy of the Jewish condition is a major theme in what in what he's doing. But even in the bleakest, darkest moments, Agno knew as a as a kind of craftsman the importance of injecting humor to release some of the tension in a story where where needed. In terms of addressing the the uh, issues of the day, Although he wasn't principally a satirist, he does have a collection of satires about political life, political satires, uh, written, uh, collected under the title The Book of State, uh, things that are poking at the both the young state of Israel as well as things that were written about the state in formation prior to the establishment of the state in 1948. And despite his identification as a uh, as a sincere Zionist, uh, as an artist, he was able to poke and skewer the uh, ridiculousness of public life, particularly of the pompousness of, uh, of politics and politicians. And that's a very uh, that's a very entertaining um, uh, small collection of these types of satires. Um, collected as the Book of State. We have them in our collection. They're all uh, together in a slim volume called The Orange Peel and Other Satires. And those are his uh, his humorous uh, political satires. But that being said, unlike so many other authors and artists uh, today, Agnon didn't really speak out on matters of the day and on... on uh, on controversies and, and things like that. Uh, here and there he would, and at the end of his life he had some things to say after the Six-Day War as a, as a very old man. Um, but generally speaking, and again, it's important to remember that maybe aside from David Ben-Gurion, Hagnon was the most famous public figure in, in the country. He was certainly the most famous man of letters. And people would turn to him and say, Mr. Hagnon, what do you think about this? What do you think about you know, what was in the newspaper? What do you think about what's going on uh, in the Knesset? And he would smile and say, I wrote a story about that. And people would say, which story? And he would say, I forgot. <laughs> so he also, in addition to the fact that he almost never interpreted his own works, uh, you know, that left people to speculate about what he was 
really saying and thinking. And he, he left it all he left it all on the page. He wasn't speaking out. He wasn't telling people how to vote or who to support and uh, things of that uh, nature. How did his writing change when he got to Palestine? When he arrives in, uh, in Palestine in 1908, again, as a very young man, he sets himself to really become a great Hebrew author which then was a rather, a rather uh, small market. Hebrew itself was in the early stages of, of being revived as a, as a modern language. And indeed, part of his achievement is helping to contribute to the revival or the reawakening, as he would have said, the reawakening of the language as it's flowing out of his pen. Uh, but at that point, he begins to write stories of the land of Israel. Prior to his arrival in 1908, he had written short pieces. There were no major works that were published before his arrival. Um, and as a matter of fact, it, later in life, when he starts publishing the different editions of his collected writings, almost none of the material that was written and published before 1908, before his arrival in the land of Israel, were included in his collected writings. He understood that these were the the adolescent uh, scribblings of a teenager, uh, and they were not worthy. There were three short stories that get reworked in different ways later in the writing, or there was there was some material that he published in Yiddish, where you can see the the origins of later stories in their earlier iterations in those stories. So, his writing changed in the sense that he himself identifies his arrival with his arrival in, in, in Jaffa in 1908 as the, as the true beginning of his career. And from that point, he continues to write on these kinds of parallel tracks where he's simultaneously writing stories of the old world, as well as stories of principally what comes to be known as the second Aliyah, this wave of immigration in the decade before World War I, this wave of immigration that he was, that he was part of when he arrived in, in 08, um, and even much later in life, in the in the forties and fifties and sixties, he's not writing stories that are set in that time. The stories that he's writing are more or less set, uh, with some exceptions, of course. They're more or less set in the world of Buchach, the world of the world of his youth at the end of the nineteenth, beginning of the twentieth century, or in that decade of the Second Aliyah leading to World War One. There are a certain amount of minority, but a certain amount of stories that are set in Germany, where he spent 12 years during a kind of extended sojourn from 1912 to 1924, at which point he returned to Jerusalem. So those are the main focuses of where he's setting his writing. And uh, the arrival the arrival in uh, Jaffa, 1908, with the publication of his first important story, a short story called Agunot, from which he takes the pen name Agnon, which then becomes his, not just his pen name, but his 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 actual name, um, mm-hmm. is a story that's set in that world of, in that world of uh, Jerusalem, in those years. But it's a story that depicts the tension between the old world of Europe and the new, the new world of 
the land of, uh, of Israel, which is, of course, a theme that runs throughout all of his writing. This has been so interesting, and I have I want to leave you with just a couple more questions mm-hmm. that I need to know. First of all, how do you see scholars using the complete set of Agnon's writing? What kind of research would you hope for, or would you suggest? And the second question is, what's next for you? Uh, what's your next project? Look, I hope that the principal use of the, of the Agnon Library will be both for scholars and lay people to encounter Agnon. And, uh, you know, I, I have a friend who was told me he was reading, who was reading Agnon, and I was quite dismayed to discover that he was reading it from my edition, because he's someone that is capable and should be reading Agnon in the original Hebrew. And of course, uh, all translators, uh, no matter how fond you are of your own work, uh, understand that, uh, that uh, people that are able to read Agnon in the original Hebrew should be should be doing that but that said our volumes have uh have features that are missing from the hebrew volumes with only one notable exception there are no annotated editions of agnon's work in hebrew and as we said part of his achievement is this intertextual work with the entirety of the rabbinic canon, the Jewish canon that came before him. And our annotations try to flesh those out, both identifying sources as well as trying to give some kind of uh, bridge for the reader to what the meaning of those connections are. And Agnon's use of his intertextual sources is uh, is itself a subject, could be a subject of a different conversation. Uh, and our annotations help the reader do that, be he or she a reader of the text in the original or the or the translation. Um, so I think in that regard, it's also particularly useful to to scholars in in serving as a bridge to some of that classical literature, as well as interpretation of, of realia and particular things that existed in the time that the contemporary reader is just simply not going to understand because these are stories, some of them written over a hundred years ago, uh, describing a, a society and a civilization that sadly no longer exists and the annotations can flesh that out uh, for for both the general reader as well as the as well as the uh, as well as the scholar um, in terms of what's next for me I maybe in the future we'll come back uh, the we say that this uh, series in 15 volumes is the most complete uh, collection of Agnon's writings in translation but it is not the entire canon of his writings there are stories which uh, there are stories which we have not yet translated the history of which Agnon stories uh, have been translated when they were translated uh, is is a fascinating one uh, why some you know frankly insignificant stories were translated decades ago and some of his most important works uh, were only now translated with uh, with our series but there's still I still have a wish list of stories that I'd like to see translated maybe we'll Come back to that, and uh, I wear a whole variety of hats in my professional life, and I have other projects and involvement. Uh, as you said, I recently became the editor of the journal Tradition, which is uh, which is, seems to be <laughs> a kind of all-encompassing labor, and that's all on top of my my day job, uh, running a program called WebYeshiva.org, where actually I broadcast my uh, my lectures on Agnon from the Agnon House. We have people that participate from all over the world. And maybe here we can connect your two questions. Uh, I'm always fascinated to meet, you know, people 
who are interested in reading and studying Agnon. Very many of them, of course, by definition, are people that are themselves Jewish, uh, that have some connection to Jewish literature and Jewish life, um, uh, one one stripe or another. But we we find people all the time. There's a scholar from Japan who's visiting Israel now, a Semitic scholar who's a great aficionado of Agnon. He reads Agnon in, in Hebrew, not in translation. And he came to us at the Agnon house to do, uh, to do some research on what he's doing. And there's another fellow uh, who recently uh, entered our orbit who's just a, a, great, uh, a great lover of Agnon. He himself is Polish. He's not, not, a, not a Jewish person. He's, he's, he's not a Polish Jew. He's a, he's a Pole who lives in China and teaches at some local college in, he teaches English, he teaches world literature at a college in China, and he teaches Agnon in translation, in, in using our English translation. And he writes to me to describe how much his students, how much the world of Buchach, how much the old Jewish traditional world of the, of the towns and villages of, of Eastern Europe resonate with his contemporary students in China. Uh, for a whole variety of uh, for a whole variety of reasons, he was describing to me how a description that Agnon has of the tension between the old way of the arranged marriage, the shadchan, uh, versus romantic love, which is a theme that Agnon treats in a variety of places. How they all completely identified with this in in their world in uh, in in China. So I think that our work has a resonance to people, you know, from. Uh, from all over and can be of benefit to readers in in all different types of uh, places. Well, thank you, Rabbi Sachs. Uh, This was such an interesting conversation. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Galit. And thank you for joining me today. Again, this is G.P. Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host of New Books in Literature for the New Books Network. Today, I've been speaking to Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, series editor of the S.Y. Agnon Library at the Toby Press. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community of writers and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash NBN forward slash join. Thank you.